0: Hey everyone, I want to let you know that support for today's episode comes from AL.com, Alabama's number one media site, covering in-depth news, special interest stories, college football, and everything there is to love about living in Alabama, accessible via desktop and mobile apps. Check them out at AL.com. One, two, three, four... Welcome to the Art Stories Podcast.
1: So there I was, standing in front of a group of
0: strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos.
1: A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles that All-American Nashville smile and she she introduces herself. She shakes my hand. Hey, I'm Taylor. Hey, I'm the groom.
0: Uh-huh. We're bringing you true personal stories told in the Southern tradition and recorded in front of a live audience. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. This coming Friday, November 11th, is Veterans Day here in the good old U.S. of A, a day where we honor all the men and women who have served as a part of our armed forces. We here at ARC Stories are definitely grateful for all those who have served and want to especially thank any of you who are listening. So, sincerely, thank you for your service. Now, in honor of Veterans Day, we are bringing you two stories from brothers in arms whose stories of experience on the battlefield are about as different as you can get. Our first one comes from an event we hosted back in July of last year where our theme was On the Road Travel Stories. Here's storyteller Andy Blanks.
1: When I was 17 years old, I dragged my parents into a Marine Corps recruiting office in Opelika, Alabama to sign my enlistment contract. And my mom sobbed the whole time. I enjoyed the Marines. A lot, actually. Met some really cool folks, you know, went to some pretty neat locales. I was in infantry, so I jumped out of helicopters and blew stuff up, and it was good. Uh, but I met my wife somewhere along the way, and we decided that the Marines would be something that we would, we would let go, right? Wasn't going to reenlist, want to raise a family, and that was good. I was great with it. And so we moved on. If you know anything about the way uh, military contracts are structured, you do an active duty portion on the front end where you're you're, you know, you're doing it every day, right? And then you have what's called inactive reserve on the back end. And the inactive is when you still belong to the government, right? You're, you're still their property. You can, you know, you're, you're obligated, but you're not training. You're, you're moving on with your life. And that's kind of where we were. And, and for me at this time, really, um, I don't think they'd called anybody off the inactive reserve because they could still call you for, for active duty. I don't think they called anybody since like Vietnam. And so it, it just, we weren't worried about it. We bought the house. The dog and my wife was was done with school, and I was in my last semester of college, and uh, we had like the you know it was like the American Dream starter kit. You know the only thing we were missing was a baby, and we were we were working on that, and then everything changed. It's Friday afternoon, February twenty eighth, two thousand three. My wife was in the shower. We were getting ready to go visit some family out of town, and there was a knock on the door. And I went to the door. It's kind of an overcast day. It was it was you know a little chilly and. There was something about the way our mailman, who we knew, just he wanted to get off my porch really badly. I thought that was unusual, and he hands me an envelope and he leaves. I flip the envelope over, and it's addressed to Corporal Andrew Blanks. Okay, so it's from the Marines, and I think, oh, this is is interesting. Why am I getting something from the Marines? And then it hits me, oh wait, I'm I'm three weeks away from my eight-year contract running out. So this is paperwork. We're gonna get to process this sucker out of here, it's gonna be great. And I open it up and I see four things. The first thing I see is you have been recalled to active duty in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Okay? The second thing I see, you'll report to Campus Lejeune, North Carolina in 14 days from now. Third thing I see, if you don't report, I'm gonna prosecute you to the full extent of the UCMJ. And the fourth thing I see is that I've been involuntarily extended for one year. So you've added a year in my contract. You know, in those old movies where the train conductor sees something on the tracks, you know, and they flash back to the train and he grabs that that big lever and he pulls it back and the train grinds to a stop. Sparks are flying. I felt in that moment like somebody had just done that to my life. Walked in the bathroom. My wife was taking a shower. Turn off the water, honey. We got to talk. What do you do when you've got 14 days? You've got this clock ticking over your head, right? This countdown clock, 14 days. What do you do? You, you do a lot. We did a lot. Parties, you know, parties with friends and relatives and celebrated my birthday early, went to the beach and got stuff ready. And, but it was such a blur. Like, I don't really remember a ton of it because it was just so in, intense. But there's one night that I remember and I, I will hopefully remember it uh, the rest of my life. It was... Um, it was March 11th. I remember that date because it was our third wedding anniversary, uh, two days before we're supposed to leave, if I'm supposed to leave. And so we went out to a nice dinner that night and on the way home, my wife says, I, I, th- I think we need to stop at the drugstore. I kind of looked at her, you know, and she said, I, I haven't been feeling myself lately and I just want to make sure before we go. And so I Pulling a drugstore. I'm thinking to myself, this would be the worst script of a movie ever. It would just be the cheesiest, most predict- We're not going to get pregnant, you know, the day before I leave or whatever to go off to war. And so I get the pregnancy test and we, we go in the house. She goes to the bathroom. I go um, to the kitchen, you know, and I'm, I'm standing back on the, on the kitchen counter. and I'm waiting and I hear in the bathroom. And she comes out of the bathroom and she stands in the kitchen door and she's smiling and she's sobbing. She's just nodding her head. Two days before I leave to go off to war, the night of our wedding anniversary, we find out we're pregnant with our first child. Uh, Two days later, I go off to Camp Lejeune. We get there and it's weird because nobody has any information. Nobody's telling us anything. They don't know if we're going Anywhere. They don't know if we're staying at, at Camp Lejeune and do it. Some people are saying, hey, you can bring your families up here and you're going to be here on base. Um, some people are saying we're going home. There's tons of confusion. If you've ever had any involvement with the government whatsoever, this doesn't surprise you, especially the military. And then um, March 20th, we declare war on Iraq. And so instantly, I realize exactly what we're going to do. Why we're there, Why we've been called, pick up the phone, call my wife. I don't have to explain anything. She's there with their family and they know. And so within a few days, we're, we're flying to Iraq. I'll never forget, uh, we left at night. We were on these buses, white buses. And, and I just remember my wife in the parking lot. You know, we were leaving. I can still remember what she was wearing. She had a black shirt, white shorts. And she's just waving, just wait, And she's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and that was it. My wife and my my child, unborn child. And I'm sitting there going, is that, is that the last time I see them? And, you know, who knows? There's all these emotions. And so we board the plane. I couldn't get settled. And so I decided, you know, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to write letters. So I've got, I got to write at least a couple. I've got to write a letter to my wife. I've got to write a letter to this child. So I wrote these letters, sealed them up, taped them inside of my Bible, thinking You know, if the worst case scenario happens, I've got last words to my wife and first words to kids, to kid taking care of, right? Put the Bible up, put my bag, go to sleep, wake up, we get on a convoy, we land, we load our stuff up, we leave the airport and we're driving on the highway, like just the highway. Like we're in an armored convoy with machine guns and armored Humvees and there are people going to work. You realize instantly, what, where, you know, what, what have I got myself into? And so we drive out in the desert for hours and hours, and, um, and then we come up on this kind of like a makeshift camp, really, was all it was, and it was where they had taken these uh, bulldozers and pushed berms of, of sand out in the middle of the desert. And we kind of go through this checkpoint, and we, and we get in this camp, and as far as I can see are tents. Not like, take your kids' camping tents, like, you know, big military tents, huge, as far as you can see here in that way. And I'm in the front of the convoy, we pull up first and my company commander gets out and out of this command post walks like the most Marine-y Marine marine you have ever seen, ever. And he's, he's standing like this, just staring holes in us. And my company commander walks up to him and kind of goes to the salute. And before he can get at this guy, who's a major, looks at him and says, who the hell are you guys? If you've never been to Marines, that's not a standard greeting. Yeah, so I'll clue you in. It's quiet there. I just want to make sure. That's, that means something has gone really wrong. Come to find out, they weren't expecting us. The tents, the hundreds of tents were empty. The group of Marines we were supposed to meet with left 48 hours before. And apparently they called back to North Carolina and told us not to go. And either nobody chose to relay that message or it never got through. So we are a week late to the prom. Like there's nowhere to go. And then i taking us to a, a base right at the border of Iraq and, and Kuwait, and we ended up doing security patrols and, and guard post duty for Marines coming out of Iraq and getting ready, staging their gear, getting ready to go home. And so I kind of settled into this life of 12 hours on guard duty and 12 hours off guard duty every day. And the 12 hours on guard duty was, I was complete, you know, completely engaged, right, like doing my thing and and being a Marine and it was cool and it was, but it was those 12 hours off that were just agonizing. And the worst part was this was before cell phones, you know, we didn't have a, a cell phone that would have worked. We had kind of a few computers we could go, you know, we could have access to every few days. And so I was trying to connect with my wife and follow her pregnancy in like three day births. And she kept asking me, are you, are you getting my letters? And I'm saying, I'm not, you know, every day I'd go back to send an email. I'm like, I'm not getting any of your letters. We, nobody knows where we are. Nobody knows where we're here. I mean, it's, I'm not getting them. And I remember walking into our tent one day, and one of the sergeants there is like, blanks, uh, we got mail. And he hands me a box. And it's full of these blue envelopes and rubber bands where my wife had been writing me every single day. And so, you know, you try to play tough, but you, you know, get my mail, you know, run back and sit in my little corner with my flashlight. And I immerse myself in her pregnancy and I'm, I'm catching up on beach trips and family vacations. And now this is probably an app, but like then it was, she's printing off emails of these, of a service that like tracks the growth of your baby. And it's the most ridiculous, it's like this week, your baby's the size of a prawn. And I'm like, I don't know what a prawn is. And I don't, it's like a... An alien, I mean, that's a thing that came out of the stomach. It's like next, you know, this week your baby's the size of like a half-eaten cauliflower head. I'm like, I don't, inches, inches would be good. You know, like four inches. And now I'm hungry. So I'm, I'm tracking, I'm tracking this. And I, I, don't, I don't cry. Like, I don't cry at all. I'm just not a big crier. And I just wept. You know, I just wept. I was sitting in a corner by myself in a tent in Iraq, just weeping. And just like that, it was over. We wake up one morning and they said, pack your stuff, we're going home. There's no warning. One day we're there, one day we're not. I do not remember leaving. I don't remember the plane ride home. I don't remember packing. I just don't remember it. My memory starts the first time I saw my wife. Now, I won't ever forget that. i was, I'd been there about a day and a half. we had been back at the base and She'd kind of gotten the green light to come, and I was walking out of the barracks to meet her, and kind of the way it laid out, I could see her coming. I could see her car. You know, she drove in front of me, and I was like, there she is. And so I walked down the stairs, and about the time I round the corner, she's walking through the parking lot. And it was like, I mean, it was like God had set the stage for her. You know, the sun was shining. Her hair was just, you know, <laughs> it was just like... And she had, like, one of those super smiles, you know, like, her eyes were all crinkly and I could see all her teeth, you know. And uh, I still remember what she was wearing because I had not seen her pregnant. She had on this beautiful little uh, peasant dress, you know, kind of tight right here. And and this belly. It had my baby in it. You know what I mean? It was a sweet reunion. It was great. But we weren't out of the woods yet because they gathered us all and they said, we— we still kind of don't know what to do with you guys. They said, but if, if you want to stay here, we can find a job. If you want to go home, go home, but know that we may, we may call you back. So we made a real quick decision. It didn't take her long. We said, we have a baby on base with nobody we know. Let's just risk it and go home. So we hightailed it out of there, went home and that was awesome. And, um, and then it's October and then it's November and then it's baby. That was awesome. And then life is just about the little one and so we're not thinking I'm not I mean I'm not thinking anymore about about going back and uh it was in the spring it was probably Aprilish and I remember on the, on the front porch of the little house we bought you know the kit's complete the dog's there we're out there with a the baby and uh I go to the mailbox to get the mail and I, I, I open the mailbox and, I, and there's an envelope from the Marines and I'm like son of you know Trying to like turn my back to my wife, you know? And I open it, and it says, you've been you know, honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. And I kind of look at my wife. <laughs> um, at the top of my closet, there's a box. And in that box is the telegram, mementos, things I brought back with me. At the bottom of that box, two letters. One to a wife, one to an unborn child. I hadn't opened them. I've started thinking about when I'm going to give this one to my daughter. I don't know when I'll give it to her. Maybe when, I don't know, she gets married or has her own baby, but I tell you what, I'm going to give it to her in person.
0: Andy Blanks is the co founder and publisher for YM360. You can find him on Twitter at Andy Blanks. Our next storyteller also found himself out of touch with love in his life while on the battlefield. However, he finds a way to connect again, though in one of the most unlikely of places. We'll find out where in just a moment after this break. We all love stories. And if you're anything like me, then the stories you love the most are the ones that do much more than simply entertain you. They move you or inspire you or help you make sense of the world around you. And that's why I am so thankful for AL.com. They are so much more than a news site and always go well beyond a just-the-facts approach to the news of the day. Like us, the good people at AL.com are storytellers who help connect me to everything that's going on in my community, in my state, and even to what's going on around the world. Plus, as Alabama's number one media site, AL.com is the perfect platform to help you tell the story of your product or business. So engage with them today. They've made it so easy, their site is right there in their name. Simply visit AL.com. Before we get back to the stories, we've gained a number of new listeners here recently, and I want to personally welcome all of you to the party. We are super excited to have you, and we would also love it if you would subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes. It's a good way to let us know what you think, and it goes a long way to help others find us. I both read and appreciate each and every review. So I want to say a huge thank you to Drew32 for you, ZoeCat601, and JillySherm for your recent reviews. We can definitely feel the love. All right, let's get back to it. Now, love is definitely one of the furthest things from the mind of our next storyteller when he finds himself literally face-to-face with his enemy. This one's from an event we hosted back in April where our theme was on the clock stories from the workplace. Here's storyteller, Mike Rudel.
2: When I get nervous, I get really cold. It was early November, 2004. I was standing in the middle of the desert, and I was really cold. I well, I was a part of a Marine Corps MP company stationed out of Alta Takadum, Iraq, which is about 20, 35 kilometers to the west of Fallujah. We had recently been broken off of our normal mission outside the wire, and now we were charged with the processing, handling, and guarding of 60 captured enemy combatants. We were about to be face to face with the very men who likely could have been shooting at us 24 hours before. We're about to be face to face with the very men who could have shot that rocket into our base just a week before that killed two Marines. I was more nervous about this particular mission than I ever was before we left the wire. And we sat there waiting, I was freezing. The trucks eventually showed up. Three trucks in the back of each of the trucks were 20 detainees. Over a period of three and a half to four hours, we uh, took, unloaded all the detainees. We lined them up in an orderly fashion outside of the rock, which is what we called our detainee facility. And one by one, we would led the um, zip cuffed and blindfolded men inside to be interrogated to have their pictures taken and sent downstairs. Now each of these men had an index card, safety pin to their clothing. It would state their name, the province they were from, and the offense they committed to lead them to be captured by American forces. So once all these men were downstairs, it was our job to guard them in the same rooms with them. And the larger room, which was roughly about the size of a Regulation High School wrestling mat, It was about 35 men. We had one Marine in the crow's nest about 10 feet above with a loaded rifle. And then there were about 7 to 10 of us Marines inside the room with them. And this is the first time on my second deployment, in over 18 months of combat situation, to where I was face-to-face with what was just 24 hours before the faceless enemy. And their faces weren't that pretty. One look at them, you could tell what a lifetime of war can do to the human body. They were cold, expressionless, weathered. Their eyes, though, their eyes looking at you, I've never seen hate before. I knew if they had the ability, they would kill us right there. There was one detainee who stood out from the rest. He was only about 14, 15 years old, probably about four or five years younger than the next youngest. He had a look of innocence to him. He looked out of place. He actually had on a pleather vest, which officially made him the best dressed terrorist of the bunch. <laughs> so we gave him the nickname Gucci. And a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us kind of took a liking to Gucci. A lot of times we would grab Gucci and we'd rent on, take him upstairs, give him a little bit of special treatment, let him stretch his legs, have a, f- you know, a few sips out of our soft drinks, maybe a few bites out of our MRE, not the boneless pork chop, but you know, any, any of the others. And we even taught him the fist bump. You know, this is 2004, fist bump was just kind of starting to you know, come into it, you know? <laughs> but we'd always do it with a smile and to see him return our emotions and return with a smile of his own, that allowed me at least to finally get in touch again with an altruistic side of me that I'd lost a year and a half before. The altruistic side can get Marines killed. You're not supposed to feel, you're not supposed to have compassion. And here I and a few other Marines were making friends with the enemy. And at one point we had everyone downstairs, including Gucci. And three of the men made a move on one of the largest Marines in the group. Myself, seven other Marines down there were faced with a sudden uprising. It was us, 35 men, many of whom were on a personal jihad. But with the strength of our, our bodies, our batons, and our voices, and particularly our training, we were able to push them back. It was a really tense five minutes. We're going around the room, throwing them to the ground, putting zippy cuffs on the wrists. And then I get to Gucci. Now, all truism aside, we had to teach him and every other person in this room that you can't take our kindness for a sign of weakness. I grabbed Gucci. I slammed him against the wall, and I'm screaming just inches from his face. I don't even remember what I said, but I remember the look on his eyes, and the look in his eyes was... No longer the happy kid upstairs. It was paralyzing terror. And he dropped to the floor and immediately crawled in the fetal position. we were eventually able to get control of the room. But I started thinking about that incident. I was always a peaceful person as a kid. While my brother was playing G.I. Joe's and He-Man, I was in the back of my parents' backyard catching roly-polies. While my friends were playing football, I was volunteering for the Crisis Center's Team Link phone line. And I remembered that look on Gucci's eyes and it shocked him, and you know what? It shocked me as well. And at that point, it brought out, that incident brought out an animalistic rage inside of me that I didn't even know I was capable of. It eventually came time for us to load the men back on the trucks and send them back to Fallujah. And just like we had brought them in, we brought them out very orderly, one Marine, one detainee at a time, flexi cuff, blindfold, upstairs on the truck, go downstairs to get a new one. There's only about seven or eight of us doing this, 60 men, you can imagine it took a while. And I kept thinking about Gucci. So I went downstairs, I called him from the, from the group that remained he walked over to me with my right hand. I firmly clasped the back of his left arm. I walked him down the hallway to an empty room. I pushed him inside and I locked the door. I didn't know what my plans were. I didn't know what I wanted to say, but I knew I wanted to be the Marine that took him upstairs. Now once all the other detainees were upstairs, I go back downstairs, I open the door and I walk in blindfold, flexi cuffs in one hand my baton in the right, and I crossed through the door, and there's Gucci. In the fetal position in the middle of the floor, he looked up and saw it was me, but his eyes immediately darted to that baton. I dropped the baton, I held up my hands, I said, it's okay, it's okay. And I slowly walked over to him. I hold my hand down and nod my head and he reluctantly reaches up and grabs my hand to stand up. He, 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 was, he was shaking, he was cold too. There was a tear running down his left cheek. I take my right hand and I grasp it on the back of his neck and I looked at him and I said, I know you're here with your uncle or your father fighting another man's war. And then I said, I don't know what you did to get here, but whatever it was, I forgive you. And then I took my my left hand and put it on his right shoulder and I squeezed with both. And I said, I hope you make it out of this shitty situation of life. And then holding back my own tears, I looked him in the eyes and I said, I love you. Now an obvious language barrier existed between the two of us. He had no idea what I was saying, but those eyes told me that he understood. I took my right hand and I closed his left hand into a fist and then I bumped it with mine, with a smile and instead of returning a smile of his own, he let out a sob and he buried his head into my right shoulder. And there I was, a United States Marine, combat tested, combat hardened and combat proven with a captured enemy combatant child crying into my shoulder. I wrapped my arms around his frail shoulders and I hugged them in comfort. And then I cried as well. I cried because like Gucci, I understood, regardless of what side of the battlefield we stood, regardless of the country we were, we were from, regardless of the culture in which we were brought up, the language we spoke are the God we worshipped. There we were, understanding each other. It was at that moment that I knew, I knew what it was like in Sunday school when they taught me that you love your enemy. I pointed to the door and I told him it was time to go. He nodded his head in his understanding. It definitely was time to go. I didn't want any of the other Marines to see this moment of compassion that I was having with the enemy. So with one last squeeze of the shoulder, I pulled his blindfold over his eyes. I turned him around and again, I took my right arm and I grasped the back of his right hand and I grasped the back of his left arm with force and I walked him through the door. Our moment of compassion was over, a moment of brotherhood was over, a moment of understanding was over. I was now the United States Marine. He was now the captured enemy combatant. I walked him upstairs to the awaiting truck. Another Marine assisted me, hoisting him up. A third Marine inside pulled him in and tossed him amongst the mix of other detainees. And I sat there. Watching as a truck disappeared into the desert night. I walk over to my truck. I climb on top of it. And I sit down next to my mounted machine gun. The same machine gun that I had spent months and months and hours and hours riding behind. The same machine gun that I had used to engage the enemy. The same machine gun that I may have used to engage Gucci or somebody like him. And then I sat with the rifle in between my legs, and I hugged my rifle, and I cried. I cried because I was worried about Gucci and what would happen to him. But then for the first time, I cried for the Marines that were not gonna be coming back home with us. And I cried for the thousands of Americans who had died since 9-11, and really for the tens of thousands of Iraqis that had died since the invasion. And I cried for the families who would not be welcoming either one of them on either side back home. And I cried because I missed home. And then I cried because I realized for the first time since day one of the invasion, I... Was in touch with my humanity again. And I cried because in 24 hours we were going back outside the wire, and I was afraid that I would not be able to turn it back off. Thank you.
0: Mike Rudolph is a home mortgage consultant with Wells Fargo. You can find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rudolph. That's R-U-D-U-L-P-H. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, we would love to have you join us at one of our live events. Our next one is coming up in about a month on Friday, December 9th. It's going to be at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. And our theme will be Tis the Season, Stories About the Holidays. We're still looking for some storytellers. So if you have a great holiday story, we would love to hear it. You can submit it and get your tickets all at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director, Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme, and our special ad music is from Ben Beany. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Aaron Moon, Betsy Lee, Senior Etheridge, Jake Brantley, and Casey Starr for making this episode possible. Thanks also to this episode's sponsor, AL.com. Visit them at AL.com. And visit us, too, at artstories.com. There you can listen to other stories, stay up to date with all of our events, and even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?